Have you turned in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3? Daniel chapter 3, and that's page 782 if you have one of the little Bibles that we're supplying. Daniel chapter 3. I did mention at one point um, what, what happened in Daniel chapter 2. We never did take time to look at Daniel chapter 2. It's a long study and it's well worth doing, but we've had a short series and we can't do that. In Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and in his dream he saw a great metal image. And the great metal, in the great metal image, the head of course was of gold and the breast, the chest and arms were of silver and the bellies and thighs were of brass and the legs were of iron. And all these various metals signified successions of world empires. This is what we've already seen. Babylon is the head of gold in Medo-Persia and Greece. And then pagan Rome, which is the Roman Empire. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was told that he was the king of the golden, of the head there of Babylon, the golden kingdom. He was probably the most glorious king and he was probably the king of the most glorious kingdom. And I think that was quite flattering for him to hear. And it had quite an impact on him. But he was also told not to expect his kingdom to last forever. That it would be replaced by another. Now, you know that following Daniel chapter 2 is Daniel chapter 3. And you have kind of the idea that he had the dream and next week he, he decided what he was going to do. But it doesn't work quite that way. The dream that he had in Daniel chapter 2 had a, quite an impact on him. As a matter of fact, the impact that he had about the God in heaven uh, lasted with him for several years, many years actually. But as the years went by, the influence kind of wore down little by little. And then he began to think to himself, now why shouldn't my kingdom last forever? And so in Daniel chapter 3, he decided in defiance, to order his servants to replicate the image, but this time make the image all of gold and put it in the valley of Dura. And this image was going to be 90 feet tall, all of gold, signifying that his kingdom would last forever. That's in defiance of the word of God, by the way, because God had said opposite to that. Then he summoned all the delegates of his kingdom to come and bow down to this image as soon as there would be, of course, all kinds of music. That's what it says in the text. Now, we have already, I mean, this is what you would call a, a man-made religion. He just invented a little religion right there on the spot because he didn't want his kingdom to ever be erased. He wanted it to last forever. So, at the command of all kinds of music, people were to bow down. I had you turn to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, we're going to read verses 4 to 6. Then an herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackfoot, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye shall fall, fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, shall the same hour be cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace." And so all of a sudden the trumpets blared and there was all kinds of music and all the people bowed down. Well, almost all the people bowed down. There were three men, three Hebrews, who refused to bow down. That was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refused to bow down. And do you remember why they refused to bow down? Why? 
because they would only worship God. There are two commandments in the Bible that forbid them bowing down. First of all, the first commandment in the Ten Commandments says, Thou shalt have no other God before me. And so they weren't allowed to bow to other gods. And the second commandment is, Thou shalt not make any images nor bow down to them. And so they were not going to do that all either. And so they wouldn't dishonor God by breaking the first and second commandment. They wouldn't disgrace themselves by sinning. And they refused to jeopardize God's cause. Do you know that when you sin, you actually put a stain on the cause of God? Do you know that when you sin, you actually put a blot on Christianity? That's what it is. And they didn't want to do that. These men had an amazing experience with God. To the point where they were willing to face the the, the fiery furnace, as it were, rather than to bow down. They wouldn't do it. Now, what would you have done? Would you have been true to God that day? Or would you have thought it a good time to tie your shoelaces at that point? Now, let me point something out here that's extremely relevant to, to what we're studying. The king and his kingdom was a political entity. It was a, a worldly government, an earthly government. This political entity used its political powers to enforce a religious act of worship. Don't lose sight of this because it plays in. It's central to the whole story that we're reading. There's a political entity. There's an earthly government. There's a kingdom. There's a king. And he's using his political powers to enforce an act of worship. Very, very important. We're going to see that again. The issue in Daniel chapter 3 is that of worship. And the power used to force the people to worship, of course, is his political power, his military probably he would use, or his state police. When the king was told that there are three men who refused to bow down, he was furious. And, but the problem was, of course, he knew these men. They were some of his best men. They were some of his, his most intelligent. They were some of his most productive people. He knew them. He respected them. So he decided where he would not have done this normally, he decided that he would give them another chance. So if you're still in Daniel chapter 3, look at verse 15 in Daniel chapter 3. Now, if ye be ready, he says to them, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, harp, sagput, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the image which I have made well. But if ye worship not, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Now I love that last, that last phrase. Who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hand? You know, I often think anything can happen to anyone. And many things have happened to many people. I often think if I get into real trouble with some really bad people, I'm, I'm going to goad them on to, to, to defy the Lord. <laughs> because if you read the Bible through and through, you will see that every time somebody defied the Lord, he rose up and dealt with them. Didn't he? Sure. So if you ever get caught by some bandits or some drug dealers or whatever it is when you go to, to, um, to Mexico and something, something like that happens, just tell them you're a daughter of God. And they'll say, well, who, the, who is God anyway? Well, you tell them he is your God and he can't, you can't do anything that he won't allow you to do. And they'll say, we can do anything. And as soon as they defy God, he's on your side and the battle is won. <laughs> 
Well, that's what happened here. And that's what happened throughout the whole Bible. I, I've seen it over and over again, and I believe that it's true. And so I'm going to look for something like that if I ever have the chance. Well, anyway. I want you to notice that these people were not given two great choices. As a matter of fact, it was two bad choices. The first choice, on the one hand, is break God's heart, break God's commandments, dishonor her, dishonor him, and disgrace yourself. That was the choice. Against being thrown into the fiery furnace. Now, which would you rather do? If you were in that situation, the situation is, okay, I want you to throw away your salvation, I want you to not worship God, you get to live the rest of your life, but you lose your eternal inheritance. Isn't that a great deal? Or die. Now, which would you rather? Well, you wouldn't rather either. <laughs> would you? Yeah. Now, you would know, I think you would know, which one is right. But, oh, la, la. What do you do? What's the decision? Yeah. Believe it or not, this is the issue we will all face very, very soon. Uh, I hope we have enough time to look at this thoroughly. But this is the issue that's coming upon the world very, very soon. The overwhelming majority will bow down and worship the image that will be set up. And the very small minority will refuse to bow down and they will be unflinching about it. And that's how the three Hebrews were, by the way. When they were asked to bow down, they didn't have to think about it and they were not afraid about this thing. It's amazing to me that they were not afraid. Look at verses 16 to 18. Verses 16 to 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we're not careful or we're not worried to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Isn't that admirable? I mean, I mean, can you just not appreciate these guys? They're about to be thrown into the burning fiery furnace and they can stand there and say to the king, hey, do what you want. We don't care. You can know one thing. We're not going to bow down to this image. We're going to do what's right. You can kill us if you like. And by the way, we have a God in heaven. If he decides to deliver us, nothing you can do. I hope, I really do hope, that if we ever find ourselves in a situation similar to where they found themselves, that we can have the same spirit, that we can have the same courage, that we can be just as brave and say, listen, you can't touch me. You can't touch me. Do you know that the Bible says all things work together for good to them that love the Lord? If you love the Lord, do you know that nothing can touch you? If you are in Jesus, everything has to come through Jesus to get to you. And if, he's, if He allows it to get to you, then it's for your good. All things work together for good. It's an amazing concept. I believe it with all my heart. And that's why I'm always happy to be a Christian. Because everything that happens to me is the best thing that can ever happen to me. I believe it. And it makes life a lot easier. Well, anyways, you know the story. The furnace was heated up seven times hotter than it should have been. The Hebrews were thrown in, and even the soldiers who threw them in were killed were by the, just the heat of the furnace. That's amazing. How that, I mean, how would you get that close to get killed? It seemed to me you couldn't get that close. But anyways, I think the Lord was in it, and He allowed this to happen that way. You know, it's always exciting to read a story like that. It's always wonderful to cheer for the heroes in the story and to think that if the same thing would happen to me, that's what I would do. Well, is it really what I would do? Ah, 
<laughs> we don't know what we would do until we find ourselves in, in this situation. And besides, do you think it's reasonable to think that we can meet a big test like that if today we can't even meet the little tests that we're facing in daily life? What do you think? Does that make any sense to you? So here's the question. How do you think God prepares his people for a great test like that? Hmm? Daily. Daily, with little tests, daily. That's how God does it. Well, it's easy enough to understand. Supposing now there's a whole bunch of raw recruits being brought into boot camp. You know, they're going to go to war in, in Afghanistan, and they're brought into boot camp. And so the general says to the, to the captain, oh, now listen, Give them an easy time. I mean, it's really rough out there in Afghanistan. And so it's going to be bad enough. Wine and dine them because it's really terrible out there. Do you think that's how they're, they're treated out there? Well, no. It wouldn't be the right thing to do either. They need to be hardened in order to be able to survive what they're going to face out there in Afghanistan. And do you know that it's the same thing for you and I? We're facing a huge test. The beast is real. And the mark of the beast is going to be imposed upon us, we're going to have a decision to make. And if our little decisions, if we fail at making the little decisions as life is given to us day by day, how are we going to face the big decision when it comes to us? That's the real question we need to ask ourselves tonight and not fail. So God is going to send you little tests. God is going to send you little trials. And they're going to get more intense as the days go by because He's preparing us for harder and harder times ahead of us. Well, anyway, the next thing I want to say is that Daniel 3 is not just a story. Daniel 3 is a prophecy. This experience will be repeated. And the components of the story that we find here are going to be the same in the last days as they are in this story. There will be a powerful ruler in the last days. There will be the uniting of church and state in the last days. There will be the use of political police state power to enforce religious worship in the last days. The Bible says so, and this is what we're studying together. And the commandments of God are central to the whole issue. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. The book of Revelation is a book of prophecy and it's written pretty well in symbols. And we need to understand the symbols in order to understand what is said there. A lot of people read the book of Revelation and understand zip. Because they don't have the key that unlocks the symbols in the book of Revelation. And I wish we had time. We don't have time tonight, of course. But little by little as we study together, we're going to discover more and more little keys that will... Unlock for us the mysteries in the book of Revelation. Well, we're in the book of Revelation, chapter 14. We're looking at verse 9, to 9 and 10 here. And the third angel followed. There's three angels in the book of Revelation, and this is the third angel. The third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image. Do you notice the word image here? There's going to be an image in the last days, just like there was an image in Daniel chapter 3. If any man will worship the beast and his image and receive the mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, which is Jesus 
and the smoke of their torments ascended up forever and ever, and they shall have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receives the mark of the beast, or the mark of his name. Whoa, what a scary passage of scripture is that, isn't it? Yeah. And this passage is called the three angels' message. It's a warning. It's a warning against worshiping the beast and the image that the beast is going to set up. Yeah. The first angel's message tells us to worship the true God. Since we're there in Revelation chapter 14, we can read that in verses 6 and 7. This is the first angel. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to everyone. Verse 7, saying with a loud voice, fear God, fear God, give him the glory for the hour of his judgment is come. We're living in the judgment time and worship who? Worship him. Who's him? He that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. And so there's two entities here. There's a beast on one side. There's God on the other. They're both demanding worship. Both of them. And God says, uh, well, we've already read what God says, right? Yeah. If you worship the beast and his image, you're going to receive the wrath of God. The beast turns around and says, if you don't worship me, I'm going to deal with your little red wagon. So we're going to see that in, in a minute. We've already studied together, and that was last night. We studied what the memorial of God's creation is. Do you remember what it is? Yes, it's the Sabbath day. That's what it is. We've also seen that the Sabbath commandment is a sign, it's a mark by God on his own people. And so God has a mark on his people and the beast has a mark on his people. And so the seventh day Sabbath identifies God's true people. God's sign and the beast's mark Involve, they both involve worship. And we studied that somewhat last night. And so, God says, don't worship the beast, for you receive the wrath of God. The beast says, you better worship me, or else. And we can read, or else. Look at Revelation chapter 13. We're not far away. Revelation chapter 13. And we're looking verses 15 to 17. I'm going to read them in order as they should have been. They're inverted here the way they're written. written. And I'm not sure why they're inverted. There's a lot of the scriptures that is written in, in poetic form. And in poetic form, sometimes you throw different things out of sequence in order to make things rhyme and whatever. But this is written inverted. And so we're going to read verse 16 and 17. Then we'll read verse 15 and we're going to find the true sequence. Verse 15, Verse 16. And he, the beast, causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand and in their foreheads. Now, this is uh, two marks. You would think it's either one or the other, by the way. And it's in your hand if you decide to do what the beast says, even if you don't believe it. It's in your forehead if you believe it. So, some people will believe it and, and will worship from faith in the beast. Other people won't believe it, but they'll be scared to death. So they're going to do it anyway. And they're going to receive the mark of the beast anyway. This time in their hands. And that's, that's the symbolism that we find here. Verse 17. And that no man might buy or sell, save he that has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And so here we see sanctions, of course. Have you ever heard of sanctions? Do people sanction these days? 
In the 1980s, I remember my wife and I and our, our family moved to Africa. We moved to Zambia. It was at a time when South Africa was being sanctioned by the rest of the world. We were in Zambia, and there wasn't a country north of South Africa that would buy anything from South Africa or sell anything to South Africa. Well, let me tell you something. In Zambia, they bought everything from South Africa, so there was nothing in Zambia. There was nothing to eat, to eat in Zambia when I moved there, except you grew it. Now, fortunately, I moved to Riverside, which is kind of a paradise, and we grow everything there, so we had some food to eat. But then we were shipped away to the north of Zambia, where we had no food to eat. We had a, a garden, and we kept ourselves alive that way, but I'll tell you what, it was amazing. My, my, bro, my son-in-law came to visit. He wasn't married yet to my daughter. He came to visit a year later, and we took him to Zimbabwe, to Victoria Falls, and we saw a man there with an apple, a green apple. We hadn't seen an apple in one year. And we looked at, we stared at the apple so long that the man finally gave it to us. <laughs> Here, you're going to have the dumb apple. <laughs> no, it's true. I, I tell you what, we were skinny at the end of that year. But anyways, that's how it was. We, and do you know that these sanctions broke South Africa's will, apartheid, of course. And then from then on, of course, they've had more freedom. Yes. Well, here we have it right here. We've just read it in verse 17. There's coming a time, if we will not bow down to the beast and its image, then we will be sanctioned. We will not be able to buy. We will not be able to sell. They're going to squeeze us financially, economically, socially, every which way to break our will. Well, God promises us bread and water for sure. He says, my God shall supply all your needs. We don't have to be afraid of that. However, if you look at verse 15, it'll get worse. If you look at verse 15, and he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, and the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And so here we have a political death sentence. That's what it is. And so all that we've got here is political pressure to gain political ends. Well, when we think of apartheid, that's what we have. Political pressure to gain political ends. But when we get to that time in history when we are supposed to be worshipping the mark of the beast or the beast or the image itself, then we've got political pressure applied to gain religious ends. That's what it is. And, it, and, if, and if it fails, if all else fails, then there's a death decree. Did you notice... That there's an image just like in Daniel uh, chapter 3. Did you notice that the image is to be worshipped just like in Daniel chapter 3? Did you notice that those who refuse will be killed just like in Daniel chapter 3? And this is future to our time. This is still coming. But let me tell you something. It's not that far future. I'm convinced of it. I wish I had time to tell you about some of the things that are happening in this world that points to the very fact that it's just a matter of time when we will be forced to worship according to somebody's ideas, the beast's ideas, of course. Now, don't miss it. Every decision that you and I make today, we're going to make in favor of God or we're going to make in favor of the beast. Every decision you make today is in favor of God or in favor of Satan's way of doing things. And every time you make a decision in favor of God, you are strengthening yourself to make the next decision in favor of God. But if you weaken yourself by making wrong decisions, then when we come to the big decision that we have to make, ah, we will be weakened and perhaps too weakened 
to be able to stand up when we should be standing. So we can't wait to decide in that day that we're going to stand for the Lord. No, no. We've got to stand for the Lord today. And we've got to stand for the Lord in the little things that God is asking us to do today. And by the way, there's nobody holding a gun to your head. Is there? No. There's nobody telling you you can't buy or sell today. I went to town today and I bought fruit and I bought stuff. I can still do it. And so there's no pressure. There's no coercion. There's no force going on today. I am. This is still a free country and I am still a free moral agent and I can do what I want in this country pretty well to some degree anyway. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And so today is a good day to practice doing God's will. But very soon, we're going to have, we're going to lose our liberties. There's no doubt about it. It says so in the scriptures. Wish I had time, like I keep saying. Anyway, I have reason to believe that every prophecy should have been fulfilled by now in, in the Bible. Plenty of reason to believe this. Jesus should have returned long ago, except for one Big problem. Do you know what it is? God's people are not ready. Do you know why God's people are not ready? Because we have not been making the right decisions to prepare ourselves to make the big decisions. That's all. We have been as a people lax and we've played fast and loose with the truth and we've been lukewarm with the whole situation. We should be on fire for God and we have been lukewarm about that whole thing. Turn with me to... Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. In Revelation chapter 7, God sends four angels. What is it for? What to do? Well, most people will say He sends the four angels to hold back the four winds of strife. Well, friends, that's what those four angels end up doing. They end up holding the four winds of strife, but that's not what God sent them to do. Let's read verses 1 to 4 probably in Revelation chapter 7. And after these things I I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that is the four winds of strife, from blowing on the earth, the winds of war. God is keeping it from getting out of hand, you understand. This is what it's saying here. I mean, you almost feel like it's getting out of hand anyway, but let me tell you, it can get far worse than it is. Like I've just said, we're still free people here. We can still, hey, I'll tell you what, in spite of the economy crashing in 2008, I'm still eating as well as I was before. I'm still driving to town when I go. There isn't a thing that has changed for me since that time. But there's coming a day. Yeah. And God is holding it all together. What for? To give you and I a chance to get our act together. That's what it is. That's all that it is. So He's holding the four winds of strife on the earth, that the winds should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea. And, and there's a symbolism for the sea here, which means many people and nations and tongues and languages, nor on any tree or individual person. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth, to destroy the earth and the sea. You see, these four angels were sent to destroy the earth. But another angel comes along and he says, wait, 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 don't do it, don't do it, because my people are not ready. Verse 3, saying, hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And put a sign on them, put a mark on them. This is really what this is all about. And I heard the number of them that were sealed, and there were sealed 144,000. Now, there's a parallel passage to this in Ezekiel chapter 9. So go with me to Ezekiel chapter 9. And I'm sorry, I don't have the uh, page number. 
Ezekiel chapter 9. This is, an, this is an exact parallel passage. The problem with the parallel passage, of course, is that the symbolism is different. And so you'll find different symbolism, but it's the same passage. You've got to read the same thing into it, only there's more description here, and it's a different symbol that's being used. But it's the same thing. We're in Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 1 to 6. He cried also in mine ears with a loud voice saying, Cause them that have charge over the city. It's talking about the city of Jerusalem, which is a symbolism of the church now. Cause them that have charge over the church to draw near every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. So here we have, there's going to be six men now, verse 2. And behold, six men came from the way of the higher gate, which lies toward the north, and every man had a slaughter weapon in his hand. And one man among them was clothed with linen, which represents Jesus, and has a writer's inkhorn by his side. And they went in and stood beside the brazen altar. And the glory of the God of Israel was gone up from the cherub, from the angel, whereupon he was to the threshold of the house, and he called to the man clothed with linen, which had the writer's inkhorn in his hide, by his side. And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city. Go through Jerusalem. Go through the church is really what he's saying. Okay? And this applies to the last days. You don't have to think in the term of the Old Testament. This was a prophecy, by the way, in symbol. And so this is applying to the last days. The Lord said, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and watch, set a mark, set a sign, set a seal upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and cry for the abominations that are done in the midst thereof. And so, we're in the church, and God says, there's abominations going on in the church. And I want you, Jesus, to go with your writers in corn and put a mark, put a sign, put a seal on the foreheads of those who sigh and cry for the abominations that are done here. And so Jesus goes along through the city, through the church, and he puts a mark on the foreheads of those people. And then, verse 5, to the others he said, in mine hearing, go after him through the city and smite. Let not your eyes spare, neither had ye pity, slay utterly old and young, and maids and children and women, but come not near my uh, any man upon whom is the mark. Then it says, begin, then, they began, began the, shoo, then they began at the ancient men which were before the house. So he began with the leaders of the church, apparently. That's what it says here. So uh, you've got to try to see what the picture is here, okay? God sends the six men with destroying weapons. They represent the four angels that we saw in Revelation chapter 4. The four angels were sent to destroy everything. These four, the six men were sent to destroy everything. But when the four angels came to destroy everything, God's people had not been marked. They had not been sealed. They had not been, they didn't have the sign of God. And so God says, hold it, hold it until my servants, the servants of my God are sealed with the seal of God in their foreheads. That's what it's all about. And so, now God has to go to a different plan. And this is what he did. He sent three messages in the book of Revelation, chapter 14. It's called the three angels' messages. There's, there's Revelation, chapter 14, is divided into three seg segments. The first segment is verses 6 to 12. And there, it's the three angels' messages. 
When those three angels' messages are understood and received, they develop the 144,000. And you can see them verses 1 to 5. And then, of course, once they are sealed in their foreheads with the character of God in them, then, of course, the last segment of Revelation chapter 14 is the second coming of Jesus. It's the great harvest when God comes to get his people to get his own. So let's go back to Revelation 14. Let's take a peek at the 144,000. What are they like? What is their qualifications? What is their their character like? And um, we're going to read verses 1 to 5. It's long passages, I'm sorry, um, to do this to you. Uh, Revelation 14, looking at verse 1, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having the Father's name, that is the Father's character, written in their foreheads in the frontal lobe. That's where the character is. That's where we, we have a conscience. That's where we make our judgments. That's where we reason. That's where we make decisions. And it's in the forehead. That's why it says that there. And so the character of God is in these people. Not only that, uh, let's go all the way down to verse 4. These are they which are not defiled with women. Women in the Bible represents churches. And these are obviously bad women. <laughs> if they're defiling women... And so all that this saying is that they're not corrupted with the false doctrines of false churches, for they are virgins, it says. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goes. So they follow Jesus wherever he goes. These are redeemed from among men, being the first fruit unto God and unto the Lamb. Verse 5, And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. What an amazing group of people that is. Well, this is what we've been studying as we've been studying this sanctuary together. This sanctuary has been ordained of God for the purpose of solving the sin problem. And we've been walking through it and we find justification in the outer court. We find sanctification in the holy place. And then when we get into the most holy place, we find Jesus trying to blot out sin, trying to purify to himself a people. And that's who the people are, the 144,000. They come out without fault before the throne of God. And they get there by receiving the three angels' messages. This has been God's plan. Well, anyway, what kind of message do you think it would take to make you pure? To make you, to develop a character that is like God's to give character? That, what kind of message do you think it would take to leave you so that you are without guile in your mouth, that you're faultless before the throne, that you're willing to set sin aside for good, forever? Must be some powerful messages, don't you think? Don't, don't you see? If you see anything like I'm seeing here tonight, the three angels' messages, I've read them over and over and over again. I understand what the words say, but let me tell you something. There is a hidden message there. There's got to be something more than mine eyes, my eyes can see because those messages are able to develop the 144,000. It's amazing. But when you look at the three angels' messages, you might come to think, where is the power? On the surface of it, it sounds like there's minimal instruction here and terrible warnings, that's for sure. But what in the world? Where's the issue? What's the problem? Well, let me tell you something. If you follow the three angels' messages, if you read them, if you study, and if you ask God to open to your minds what's really there, you begin to see a golden thread running through the whole pattern. You begin to, to see a contrast between self-worship and the worship of God. 
You begin to see a contrast between truth and the traditions of men. You begin to see a contrast between man-made religions and God's true church. You begin to see a contrast between salvation by faith and salvation by human inventions. Salvation by grace and salvation by works. Freedom of religion as opposed to legislated righteousness and enforced dogmas. You begin to see all that. It's all in there. And you can see it when you ask the Lord to reveal, to open the verses to you to what they're saying there. So the beast of the third angel doesn't know anything about righteousness by faith. No, no. With him it's righteousness by decree. It's righteousness by bull. It's righteousness by works, by force, by coercion, by legislation. And if all that fails, it's righteousness by torture. There's no grace with him. There's no power with him. There's no Holy Spirit. It's a man-made religion. Let's go to the second angel's message. This is verse 8. That's where Babylon is high, highlighted. And we want to look at this, this, um, this entity called Babylon here. And by the way, Babylon is the same as the beast. It's just another name for it. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen. Is fallen, that great city. Because she, notice she's a she. She made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now in the Bible, Jesus says, I want you to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And that's the wine that that they put in that little table of showbread there. There's two tables with showbread and on on the, the shelf below there's wine. And that represents the blood of Jesus. Well... As in everything, Satan counterfeits everything. And so we have here Babylon coming and she has a cup in her hand and it's full of wine. What does the wine represent? If the wine of God represents the word of God here, then the wine of Babylon represents the false doctrine of the enemy. That's what it is. And you see here that this entity called Babylon, she makes makes all nations drink of the wine of False doctrine. That's what it is. First of all, Babylon is the symbol for man-made religion. Therefore, Babylon is represented in Revelation chapter 17 by a woman. Well, we've already seen that it's a she. Go with me to Revelation 17. Revelation 17. We're going to read all the way to verse 5. In Revelation 17. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, come here. I will show you the judgment of the great whore, that's what it says here, the great harlot, that sits upon many waters. Now that's interesting. Uh, This is talking about a woman. And I've already said that the symbolism for woman in the Bible, when it's talking about prophecy, is a woman is a church. And she's, if she's a pure woman, then she's the pure church. She's the true church of God. And if she's an evil woman, then she's, she's a, a false church. Okay? So here we have this woman, and she's called the whore. That's not a very good woman, apparently. I, I kind of learned that somewhere along the way. Okay? And it says she sits upon many waters. What does the waters represent? Well, if you go to verse 15, it's right there in Revelation 17. Look at verse 15. And he says unto me, the waters which you saw... Where the horse sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. Okay, 
So water, symbolically, in the book of Revelation, represents people and nations and languages and tongues. And the woman is sitting on top of the water. Now, the word sitting means a seat of authority. That's the symbolism for sitting. So this woman gets her authority from the people in the world. Nations and tongues. So this, who this, is, this is who this woman is. Now, I haven't told you who she really is yet, but you can get clues from this. Okay? We go to verse 2. With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. And the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. The wine of her false doctrine. Her doctrines are so bad that they are intoxicating. There's a difference in the Bible between the, the, the sweet wine that is unfermented and the wine that is uh, fermented because the wine that is fermented is intoxicating and of course grape juice is not intoxicating and the Lord is making a difference here and he says the whore is offering to the people intoxicating wine intoxicating doctrines bewitching doctrines entrancing doctrines there, there's a lot of bewitchment in here okay and um, the woman you can see also in verse 2 uh, mingles in high society this this entity, whoever she is, called Babylon now, is in high society. She mingles with kings. It says she has fornication with kings. Verse 3. And she, no, so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sit. Notice she's sitting here, seat of authority. Now she's sitting on a scarlet colored beast. So she gets her seat of authority from all the people, from the nations and the tongues and people. She also gets her authority from the beast. Hmm. The woman represents a church. The beast represents what? A kingdom, a political kingdom. And so she gets her authority, her power, from the beast upon which she sits. That's another key as to who this power is. I saw a woman sit upon a, colored, uh, a scarlet colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. I wish we had time to let you know what those seven heads and ten horns are. But anyways, we don't have time. All we can tell, however, this woman is sitting on the beast. The beast represents a political party. It's a nation. And the woman represents a church. And this is the mixing of state and church. This is the uniting of state and church. And there's power there for the church. Because the church uses the state to enforce her dogmas. This is what we're beginning to see here. Verse 4. And the woman, which represents the false church, was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. So the wine that's in her cup is abominable and it's filthy. Yuck. Verse 17. Verse 5, I mean. Chapter 17. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abomination of the earth. Well, there she is. That's what Babylon... Do you know where the word Babylon comes from? Where? Hmm? The Tower of Babel. That's exactly right. Go to Genesis chapter 11. We're just going to read one verse there. There was a man by the name of Nimrod. This is shortly after... By the way, can I tell you something? The whole Bible is in the book of Genesis. The whole Bible is in the book of Genesis. It doesn't matter what you want to talk about in the rest of the Bible. You want to talk about the mark of the beast, you'll find it in, in uh, Genesis chapter 4. It's there. You can begin studying the mark of the beast in Genesis chapter 4. 
Every study that you can make in the Bible is in the book of Genesis. The whole book of the Bible is in the book of Genesis. It's an amazing book, actually. Well, anyways, I was telling you about Nimrod. Um, shortly after the flood, the population of the earth was reduced to eight people. You remember, his name was Noah and he had, he had three sons and wives and, and between he and his wife and his three sons and their wives, that was eight people. Well, the population grew and grew and it didn't take very long. And pretty soon, some wanted to follow God and some didn't want to follow God. And Nimrod became the leader of the group that didn't want to follow God. So he came down off the mountain and he went for the, for the plains. You know, it's always easier to live in the valley. It's always harder, Martha, to live on the... Where's Martha? Oh, there you are. It's always harder to live up on the mountain, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, that's right. So Nimrod was looking for a valley and he found the valley of Shinar and he decided there that he would make a name for himself and for the people that was with him. They decided to build a tower that would rise above the clouds because if God ever decided to flood the earth again, they would beat that flood. They'd be above the clouds, you know. Yeah, boy, people are unreasonable. But anyway, that's what he did and God decided that's not a good idea. And so God came down to confuse their languages And I want you to read verse 9 in Genesis chapter 11. Verse 9. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, that tower and that city, because the Lord did there confound their language of all the earth, and from thence the Lord scattered them abroad upon the face of all the earth. And so there God confused everything, confused all their languages. And the the word Babel means what? Confusion, that's what it means. Well, now, is there confusion? I mean, now, if we go to the book of Revelation, we see an entity called Babylon, and that means confusion. And we already see that it's a she, that it represents religion. That's what it represents, all kinds of religion. Every man-made religion is part of Babylon. Did you know that? Now, notice carefully what I said. Every man-made religion is part of Babylon. God has His church. God has His religion. And it's not part of Babylon. But every man-made religion is part of Babylon. The world is filled with religious confusion. Why are there so many religions? While there is only one truth. How can that be? Why are there so many denominations? How is it that as Christians we can't get along and we don't even believe everyone the same thing? And how can we think that we have the truth if somebody else is going contrary to us. We can't both be right. We can both be wrong, but we can't both be right. And if there's only one truth, there can only be one church. And it's amazing. But the Bible does teach that there is religious confusion. There is religious confusion and it's called Babylon in the book of Revelation. That's what it is. God's true religion teaches righteousness by faith. That we are, we are saved by the gift that God gives us. And we can have that gift by laying hold upon it by faith. But all the other religions would like to teach righteousness by tradition. Have you ever heard of religions say, well, this is our tradition? It has nothing to do with the Word of God. It's just that we've evolved to believe this and we have a creed and we won't go any further than the creed says. And a lot of the creed is just traditions of the church. That's Babylon. The true religion is based on the Bible of God. All false religions have righteousness by tradition, righteousness by decree, righteousness by legislation, righteousness by works of the law. 
Righteousness by church affiliation. Have you ever heard anyone say, this was good enough for my grandparents, and it was good enough for my parents, it's good enough for me. Well, friends, listen, it isn't good enough for God. It isn't good enough for God. God says, listen, I sent you my word. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? Are you going to teach everything contrary to what I am teaching? That's going to cause confusion. And of course, the world is filled with confusion. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. I just want us to see if we can, in Matthew chapter 7, what religion is like today. Matthew chapter 7, we're looking at verse 21 in Matthew 7. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Isn't that a beautiful verse? Isn't it true? It's the people that does God's will that will be in the kingdom. Ah, but there's a lot of religions that are going to say, but that's what we do. We do God's will. Now watch. Watch the next two verses. For many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And in your name have we not cast out devils? And in your name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess, Jesus is speaking now, then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Why didn't he know them? They were casting out devils. They were doing many wonderful works. They were prophesying in his name. And he says, I never knew you. Why is he saying that? What's wrong with their religion? How do we know that something is wrong with their religion? Do you know? To what were they pointing as having favor with God? Yes. They're pointing to what they have done. And Jesus said, well, without me you can do nothing. You did all of that without me. And I'm telling you, you can't get to heaven but by me. Isn't that what it says over here? John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way. There is no other way. No man comes to the Father or heaven but by me. That's it. Don't tell me you're doing this and doing that and doing that and you're worthy of heaven because you've done all of that. That's false religion. And that's the confusion that we find in the world. Go with me to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. We're looking at verses 7 to 9 and verse 13 in Mark chapter 7. 7 to 9 and verse 13 in Mark chapter 7. Howbeit in vain do they worship me. And a lot of people worship him. In vain. What does that vain mean? It's useless. Yeah, it's empty. Empty worship. That's what he's saying. Yeah. Howbeit in vain do you worship me? Teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. That's what it says. Verse 8. For laying aside the commandments of God, ye hold the traditions of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things you do. And he said to them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God that ye may keep your own tradition. Do you know that there are traditions in the world that trump God's commandments? Have you ever heard of any? <laughs> Look at verse 13 now. Making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have delivered, and many such like things you do. Ah, friends, it's amazing. It's amazing. Cain and Abel, you remember the story? Cain invented his own little religion. He wanted to be accepted of God because he decided that how he was going to worship God had to be accepted. And God rejected him. 
And Nimrod, he started his own religion, but it was led to nothing but confusion. And Nebuchadnezzar decided that he would have an, an image and he'd have everyone worship that, and that would be the worship of God. And God says, well, that doesn't jive with my with my word. And it doesn't matter if you think the name Mohammed or Buddha or Confucius and all kinds of other religions in the world. Friends, there is only one. And to invent a new religion, a man-made religion, does not cut it. Even in the days of the Jew, Jewish people, in the days of Jesus, they were God's chosen people. But they had so perverted... By the way, when we read Mark chapter 7, Jesus was speaking to the Jews. They were God's chosen people, but they had so perverted the Bible that it had made for themselves a different kind of religion. It was a religion based on works, and it led to confusion, of course. And Christianity today, yeah, in all its confusing disagreements, had been drinking from the cup that's in the hand of Babylon, the wine of her fornication. And that's why there's so much dichotomy. There's, there's so much difference between one church and the next. What are we going to do? How are we going to come to grips with this thing? I wish, I wish I had enough time. You know, anyway, I would like to take the time one of these days to teach us. As a matter of fact, that's what I'm going to do the very last night. This will be Saturday night this week. When we get to it, the very last message on Saturday night, I want to let you in on a key. The key that will lead you to know what God wants, and how you can have it. If you can be there, please, please come. Jesus wants us to drink from the water of life. He does not want us to drink from the wine of Babylon. Jesus wants us to live by faith in Him and not by faith in man's traditions. The time is coming when the image of the beast will be erected and we will be asked to bow down to this image. We will be asked to worship something we will know that it is against the will of God. Have you met Jesus? Do you know that He is the Savior? Every church claims Jesus, but they reject His Word. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. In the picture you have a bridge. There's a great gulf fixed between the sinner and God. But the cross is the bridge and we can find our way to God, as it says here, I am the way, no man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is saying, I am the bridge. But friends, Jesus is also the Word of God, isn't He? And when they erect an image, we're going to know we can't bow down to the image. But listen, it's not going to be an image such as a carving in the corner of a church. That's not the image that it's going to be. It's going to be, well... Come back Thursday and I'll tell you. Because Thursday we're going to talk about who the beast is specifically, what the mark is specifically, and we will know how to avoid it. Would you like to avoid it? Uh, would you like to follow Jesus? This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.